0: Good evening. President says he might invoke the Defense Act to solve the oil shortages that are driving up prices in the United States. We talk about Yemen on the eve of the president's trip to Saudi Arabia. The third installment of the January 6th hearings. And we hear about a play that won a Tony Award whose writer is a regular on WBAI. With these and other stories, I'm Paul DiRienzo with the WBAI News for Thursday, June 16th, 2022. Wall Street tumbled as fear swept financial markets and the world economy may buckle under higher interest rates. The Standard & Poor's 500, a very important uh, way of deciding whether the economy is going up or down, fell 3.3%, reversing gains from the day before. Stocks also fell across Europe as big banks there followed the Federal Reserve and hiked their interest rates. The Bank of England raised its key rate for the fifth time since December, although its hike was a more modest quarter of a percent. Yesterday, the Fed raised the U.S. rate a steep, three quarters of a percent, the biggest jump since 1994. The U- U.S. economy is still holding up, driven by a strong job market. Fewer workers filed for unemployment benefits last week than a week before. And White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre told reporters today that President Joe Biden is willing to use the Defense Production Act if it would help the United States increase oil refining capacity and bring down the price of gas.
1: I don't have anything to share in specifically how we would use the DPA, but we're saying that the president has used it before, uh, and uh, and he's willing to do that again. But the the first the first step that he wants to do is make sure to have the conversation and hear ideas, right, from the oil refineries how we can be uh, how we can be helpful to them uh, to actually get more capacity out.
0: Jean-Pierre's comments come as Biden asked oil refiners to take immediate action to increase capacity as soaring gasoline prices top more than $5 a gallon on average nationwide. More than one million barrels a day of U.S. oil refining capacity, about 5 percent, have shut since the beginning of the pandemic. And a congressional watchdog report offers a damning assessment of both the Trump and Biden administration's commitment to tracking violations of humanitarian law in Yemen. The Government Accountability Office examined U.S. weapons sales to the Saudi-led coalition in Yemen and raised serious doubts about Biden's campaign promise to end U.S. support for Saudi attacks on Yemen. But the GAO found that the Biden administration's move to classify weapons as offensive or defensive was largely meaningless. The United Nations has called the Saudi-led war in Yemen, one of the world's worst humanitarian crises, affecting an estimated 21 million people. And next month, President Biden is heading to the Middle East for high-level talks, including a visit with Saudi Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman, who U.S. intelligence says was behind the 2018 murder of journalist Jamal Khashoggi in the Saudi embassy in Turkey. Biden has promised to use the meeting to extend a truce that brought an end to the fighting. Dr. Isha Jumani is president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. She says the attention on the death of Khashoggi is proof of the old chestnut. The death of one man is a tragedy. The death of millions is a statistic.
2: I'm not sure I believe what President Biden is saying about his visit to talk about Yemen. In his statement, he said he's going there because he is interested in having the Saudis and the Israelis have a joint protection or defense program so that has nothing to do with Yemen. and and by including even more people in this presumably defense of saudi arabia it just goes against everything that he'd said in the past he's not keeping his promises he's making a situation that the u.s had allowed to happen for over seven years to continue the saudi aggression on yemen started with the obama administration and president biden was then vice president during the trump administration over 30 of obama officials wrote an apology letter including jack sullivan agreeing to the saudi war on yemen and supporting it was like akin to getting into a car with a drunk driver We had a much higher expectation from President Biden because they are the ones who allowed this drunk driving to kill so many people in Yemen. And yet we reach a time when we are hoping, especially with the truth going on now, that he's going to push even harder. We're not asking him to ask anything from the Saudis. We're asking him to end US support for the war on Yemen, the Saudi war on Yemen. And that's within his power to end U.S. support for the war. If they end the U.S. support for the war, this war would stop immediately. The jets that bomb Yemen cannot fly anymore. It's not that he needs anything from Mohammed bin Salman. It's the other way around. Mohammed bin Salman needs the U.S. to continue this war. And the U.S. has the power to just shut down sending him weapons to continue his war crimes in Yemen
0: countless or hard to count so many cross-border attacks by Yemen into Saudi
2: Arabia. That's true, but we also hope that the State Department is going to talk about the 100 times more attacks against Yemen and the Yemeni people. The State Department, unfortunately, can only see and report when Yemeni retaliate against the aggression that they are subjected to, but would never say a word when something happens to Yemeni people, like a school bus that was bombed with over 40 kids, less than 10 years of all the majority of them were killed using U.S. weapons. It's always in defense, sympathizing with Saudi Arabia and the Emirates, when the magnitude cannot even be compared. Yemen has been bombed every single day for over seven years. Yet the State Department never made an announcement or even an objection or even sympathy with the people of Yemen.
0: What about the ceasefire that's happening now? Is that real? Do you think something could come of that?
2: has provided a reprieve that there is hope that this can end and the way the state department and president biden had framed it is they are thanking saudi arabia for facilitating it i find that funny in a sarcastic way because saudi arabia is doing the fighting so they cannot facilitate or mediate something that they are involved in since the truce started in may They have not been bombed on a daily basis. But for me, the most important part, the fighting factions, the government of Sana'a and everybody else who is fighting this, can stop the fighting and can sit down to negotiate a peace. Because at the end, it's the Yemeni people who are suffering the most out of this. Congress can pass the Yemen war power resolution that says the U.S. cannot support the Saudi-led war on Yemen. I would like to ask your listeners to please call their representatives to ensure that they support the Yemen War Power Resolution. They can call 1-833-STOP-WAR.
0: Dr. Isha Jumani is president of the Yemen Relief and Reconstruction Foundation. In national news, today was the third installment in public hearings by the House Select Committee investigating the January 6th insurrection attempt by supporters of President Donald Trump on January 6th, of course, 2021. Mm -hmm. Testimony focused on Trump's legal arguments that Vice President Mike Pence had the power to suspend the ceremonial counting of electoral votes and send the election back to a handful of swing states for a possible revote. With live testimony, including from Pence's counsel, and other evidence from its year-long investigation, the panel is discussing, dissecting as unlawful and unconstitutional, the plan from conservative lawyer John Eastman to reverse Biden's election victory. They presented a clip of how Eastman, a law professor, approached former White House lawyer Eric Hirschman for a favor. Hirschman picked up the story: a phone call from Eastman started to ask me about something dealing with Georgia and preserving something potentially for appeal. I said to him, are you out of your effing
3: mind? said, I only wanna hear two words coming out of your mouth for now on, orderly transition. And then he screamed, I said, I don't wanna hear any
0: other effing words coming out of your mouth, no matter what, other than orderly transition, repeat those words to me. Eventually he said, orderly transition. I said, good, John.
3: Now I'm going to give you the best free legal advice you're ever getting in your life. Get a great F in criminal defense lawyer. You're going to need it. And I hung up on him. In fact, just a few days later, Dr. Eastman emailed Rudy Giuliani and requested that he be included on a list of potential recipients of a presidential pardon. Dr. Eastman's email stated, quote, I've decided that I should be on the pardon list if that is still in the works. Dr. Eastman did not receive his presidential pardon. So let's see what Dr. Eastman did as a result when he was deposed by this committee.
2: I assert my Fifth Amendment right against uh, being compelled to be a witness against
3: myself. Did the Trump legal team ask you to prepare a memorandum regarding the vice president's role in the counting of electoral votes at the joint session of Congress on January 6, 6th, Dr. Eastman, did you advise the president of the United States that the vice president could reject electors from seven states and declare that the president had been reelected? So is it your position that you can discuss in the media direct conversations you have with the president of the United States, but you will not discuss those same conversations with this committee? Dr. Eastman pled the fifth a hundred times.
0: And, of course, the Fifth Amendment is constitutional right of any person who's being questioned in a legal situation. And, of course, to plead the Fifth is not in any way. uh, is not something that's supposed to uh, cause an assumption of guilt at all in the person who does it. However, 100 times is a bit much for that kind of thing, I think. Hirschman said, he told Eastman, You're going to turn around and tell 78 plus million people in this country that your theory is this is how you're going to invalidate their votes. He warned you're going to cause riots in the streets. Gripping new evidence also detailed how the mob that stormed the Capitol that day came within 40 feet of where Pence and his team were sheltering, highlighting the danger Trump had put him in. 26
3: p.m. Secret Service rush Vice President Pence down the stairs. I think they had been trying to figure out whether they had a clear route to get us to where it was that they wanted to move us to we moved pretty quickly down the stairs and through various hallways and tunnels to the secure location uh, upon arriving there there was further discussion as to whether or not we were going to leave the Capitol complex or stay where we were vice president pence and his team ultimately were led to a secure location where they stayed for the next four and a half hours barely missing rioters a few feet away make no mistake about the fact that the vice president's life was in danger a recent court filing by the Department of Justice explains that a confidential informant from the proud boys told the FBI that the proud boys would have killed Mike Pence if given a chance this witness whom the FBI affidavit refers to as W1 stated that other members of the group talked about things they did that day and they said that anyone they got their hands on, they would have killed, including Nancy Pelosi. W-1 further stated that members of the Proud Boys said that they would have killed Mike Pence if given a chance.
0: Panel Chairman Benny Thompson, Democrat of Mississippi, opened the latest hearing citing Pence's own words that there was almost no idea more un-American than the one he was being asked to perform. Reject the vote. But Thompson also told reporters after the hearing he has no intention of sending the results of the investigation to the Department of Justice, not yet anyway. That's despite an official request made today, that is until his committee has completed its final report.
3: We got the letter yesterday. We're reviewing it. We'll respond to them. But we're in the midst of conducting our hearings. Uh, We have a program to get over. We have to get the facts and circumstances behind January 6th. We will work with them, but we have a report to do. That does not mean that we're not going to cooperate. We got the letter yesterday. We've interviewed over 1,000 witnesses. We've had a number of information. That means we'd have to stop what we're doing to then work with the Department of Justice. We will eventually cooperate with
0: them. We have five more hearings to work through. We have a lot of other things to do. Benny Thompson. Meanwhile, today, the January 6th panel has asked Virginia Thomas for an interview. Her name has come up in relation to Trump's lawyer, John Eastman. A conservative activist and the wife of Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, Ginny Thomas, communicated with people in President Trump's orbit ahead of the attack and on the day of the insurrection. At her news conference today, Karine Jean-Pierre, the White House spokesperson, was asked if Justice Thomas should recuse himself from any cases arising from the hearings.
1: So that is something that, that the court has to decide. That is not uh, for us uh, to comment on. Uh, I can say this. Uh, we have full confidence in the uh, uh, the select committee, January 6th select committee, and it is for them to decide how they're going to move forward on, on their particular uh, process that they're going through. Does he plan to watch the hearings today or in the coming? Well, um, I think he has said this before, and I've said this a couple days ago. He's, he's probably going to catch it here and there. He has a busy schedule. Uh, I'm sure... Uh, Folks around him, his senior staff, will update him, update him as needed.
0: Yeah. Representative Thompson said today that it's time for uh, Jenny Thomas to come to talk to the committee after investigators discover information that refers to Thomas and communications they have relating to Eastman. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. And last weekend was a big event for lovers of Broadway plays and musicals. It was the annual Tony Awards, where Broadway chooses the best performances and plays for the year. It's a bittersweet occasion since Broadway's lights were dim for two years due to COVID. But a new season of theater has New Yorkers excited. Actually, the excitement extends to Atlanta, Georgia, and from the studios of WBAI Radio itself. Atlanta native Joaquina Kalungo won the award for Best Actress in a Musical for her performance in Paradise Square, a musical about a bar run by two women, one black and one Irish, in the neighborhood known as Five Points near today's Chinatown. This is back in 1863 at the height of the Civil War. Kalungo plays one of the bar owners, Nellie O'Brien, and her torch song is Let It Burn.
1: Falls.
0: I've never heard an applause like that at a a TV awards show. On Sunday, Calacongo, 33, got that standing ovation for her performance of Let It Burn. In the musical, she plays Nellie O'Brien, confronts rioters who set fire to Paradise Square. She says, you can burn it down to ash and then out of ash will grow. She sings, if you think we'll run away, you've got a lot to learn. We're stronger than your fire. And I say, let it burn. The play was written by WBAI regular Larry Kirwan. He spoke with the news earlier today. I came upon
4: some etchings in a book at the Strand, I think it was, that showed the African-American dance halls, which were really popular in the Five Points. And I was struck by it because they showed the dancers. It was always, or usually, it was a black man and a white, of course, Irish woman, I could tell by the looks on the faces that the artist was trying to show that these people were romantically involved. And then when I checked into it, I found out there was a lot of unions between the Irish immigrants who had fled the famine in Ireland in the 1840s and the African-Americans, so much so they, they actually had a name. They didn't call themselves it, but the Uptown Establishment, call them amalgamationists there was a lot of unions and the, a lot of them ended on July 13th 1863 with the first day of the draft riots
0: the draft riots definitely figure in the uh, story did you take modern feelings and sort of overlay them on a past history or was that do you think exactly what it was like or something what it was really like Well, no one knows
4: exactly what happened during the draft riots. There are a lot of different theories because it was anarchy in the streets. We do know that there are 119 actual deaths. There were probably more, but they were counted. And 11 African-Americans were hung. The gangs, as in Gangs of New York, were fighting. I actually think that a part of it was immigrants coming here and expecting a great life and found out that they were at the very bottom of the, the barrel here and that they started to march uptown in their thousands at that point. So that showed sure there was organization in it, but things got out of hand. Buildings got burned down, including the Colored Children's Asylum. The militia were off at the Battle of Gettysburg, and it wasn't until they came back that the draft riots were put down. There was always a lot in common between blacks and Irish; they all love music, they love partying, and they love family. So when the Irish landed here, they were actually lower than the blacks in lower on the social scale than the blacks in the five points because they were there a couple of generations before and had jobs like as waiters and coachmen and whatever the irish became diseased and penniless had to work their way up so when they were both at the bottom of the social scale they were able to meet in these african-american dance halls and get on together the way they normally would it was just later when the irish moved past the blacks and got jobs as cops and everything, that things changed around. I think things are changing back. You'll still see in bars, you'll see Irish and black hanging out and having a good time and listening to the music. And God knows we Irish musicians have taken a lot of inspiration from black musicians. We want to be black
0: <laughs> musicians, you know. We were We were trying to be like the best. The Tony Award was amazing. It was great to be in a play that wins an award like that. The
4: message of the play goes on. More than the Tony's, Shakina Calaconga got the chance to show what she does every night on stage. She just is a wonder and blows the roof off the place. And it's that mixture of passion and a message. And the message really is that back in 1863, it was the worst possible time in America, and yet great things could happen between the people, the black and the Irish. And in this day and age, we're in fractious times, but not as bad as 1863, so we can do better. Is it meant for a lesson for people today? It's not a preachy play, it's, uh, it's just showing. We have a wonderful cast, and when you, you're in there, as you within five minutes, you're back in the five points, and you're seeing what happened. And you're part of the action and you see these actors on stage become Five Points residents and show that there is a way that people from different backgrounds and different races can really mix and get on and uh, make a change in the world.
0: WBAI regular Larry Kerwin is the author of Paradise Square, the Tony Award-winning musical about blacks and Irish in New York City during the Civil War. Paradise Square was nominated for 10 Tony Awards, is currently playing at the Barrymore Theater. And in more entertainment news, uh, stay tuned to WBAI for an interview with Judy Collins tonight on Folk Radio at 10 p.m. Her new album is Spellbound, and we'll take it out with that. And that's on the news for Thursday, June 16, 2022. The news of producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Reggie Johnson from New York City. I'm Paul Durienzo. Let it burn.